Welcome to the Digital Digest, your weekly podcast from Capacity Media on all things digital infrastructure. I'm your host, editor Melanie Mingus, and joining me this week for the penultimate episode of Series 4, no less, we have editor-at-large Alan Burkett-Gray, and live from Dubai for Capacity Middle East, we are joined by deputy editor Natalie Bannerman and reporter Seth Malik. Later in this episode, we will be hearing from Annabelle Helm, who is the newly appointed director of the Global Leaders Forum. Annabelle is also in Dubai, and Natalie and Seth caught up with her earlier in the week, so more on that soon. But before we dive into the bigger stories, it's it's time for a roundup of the headlines. This week, we've heard that Rivada Space Networks, the latest SACO on the block, is to spend 4 billion euros on its network. Rogers Communications has launched Canada's first commercial 5G standalone network, while Digital Bridge has led a 60 million US dollar Series C round for Solona, which recently launched a fully integrated 5G LAN platform. Over in the Middle East, Kalam Carrier Solutions has officially debuted as the Bahrain-based Kalam Telecom integrates its recent acquisitions. Um, and over in Ukraine, where we continue to follow the impact of the war on ICT infrastructure, the state special communications service has counted more than 3,000 organized DDoS attacks since the beginning of the war. And in financial results this week, comparing 2020 to 2021, Inmarsat turned a loss of 182.9 million US dollars into a profit of 17.7 million, which is an achievement in anybody's book. So huge congratulations to the team at Inmarsat. Um, and staying with the financial theme now, but revisiting one of our Chinese vendor stories of recent weeks, it's over to Alan with the latest from Huawei. Thank you, Melanie. Yes, this is a story showing the impact of US sanctions on Huawei. They announced their revenue for 2021. Now, they're not a publicly quoted company, but they have always made a point of reporting their revenue every year. Um, revenue was down by 28.5% in a year, which is a staggering amount. This year, it was just shy of $100 billion US, 636.8 billion renminbi. But the year before, in 2020, it was 891 billion renminbi, so a huge fall. This is shows it's taken Huawei back to 2017 in terms of made a profit. The operating profit was about 19 billion dollars, so that's up on the previous years. The results announcement was the first public appearance of Meng Wanzhou since she emerged from Canada last year after fighting extradition to the US, and she said that despite a revenue decline in 2021, Huawei's ability to make a profit and generate cash flows is increasing. And she said she was more than capable of dealing with uncertainty, which I guess is probably true. She's had uncertainty for the last three years or so, since 2018, in fact. So sort of mixed news from Huawei. They're putting a brave face on it, but what really went down was the carrier business and the terminal business. Carriers, obviously, they lost a lot of sales in the Western world and in Australia and other places like that. Terminals, their phones, their handsets, unfortunately, they were blocked from Google's Play Store, their Android phones. So sales for the consumer business went down 49.1%, which is just huge. Enterprise business, though, went up, but only by 2.1%. So it's tough news for Huawei. And in the rest of the China versus 
US world. The FCC this week identified both China Telecom and China Mobile as a threat to national security. And this is not really a surprise. A few years ago, they denied China Mobile a license to operate in the US. And also they withdrew an existing license from China Telecom. But they've not gone so far as to identify the two companies as a threat to national security, which is what they've been saying. It's under the Secure and Trusted Communications Networks Act of 2019. And if you look down the list, then there is the usual Chinese vendors, but also China Mobile, China Telecom, and a new entry, Kaspersky Lab, which is the uh, Russian cybersecurity company. I'm sure that's connected also with Russia's war on the Ukraine. I don't think we can see a way out of this great China versus US technology fight. It's going to go on for a long time. Uh, there was a hope when uh, Biden, Joe Biden, was elected that this might give the US an opportunity to work on a settlement. But I don't think that's happening. Very clear that it's not happening. It'll go on. So be warned. Thanks, Olin. I have absolutely no doubt the US will drag this on for a very long time. And the Kaspersky development earlier in the week did make me chuckle somewhat. Not that I've got a particularly dark sense of humour. The really interesting thing for me for this Huawei story is that if they're not publicly listed, how do we know that we can trust these figures? The fact that the results actually were quite bad and they still published them. It wasn't like Stalin era tractor production figures in the Soviet Union in the 1940s where they were always going up and the whole USSR was full of happy farmers getting in the corn with their shiny new tractors. I think they have got the auditors for their results. They do measure them to international accounting standard. And at some point in the future, I think they might want to go public. But obviously, the US has derailed this for the next five years or so. But if they were massaging the figures, they would say, oh, no, it hasn't affected us at all. But everybody knows it has. And they have reported some here some really bad figures. If it was a public company, a listed company, the share price would have crashed in the last few weeks with, with numbers like that. Oh, certainly, yeah. The question arises for me because they still have Latin America, they have Middle East, they have Africa and Asia, and they have Neon in Saudi Arabia, which is enormous. And I question how they are positioning themselves in the US versus China. They've always claimed that they're completely innocent, etc., etc. So the narrative ties in, but that's incredibly cynical of me. And I do hope that they continue to make lots and lots of money from their remaining markets. <laughs> Thank you, Alan. Well, we mentioned at the start of the episode that we are recording this during Capacity Middle East, which returned to Dubai this year for the first time since the pandemic. So half the team is on site, and as such, we have a lot of Middle East-based stories for you. Um, the first of which is coming from Natalie, who has news of a company called Alliance Networks. Now, the aim here is to interconnect all GCC countries, enabling the six-nation region to act as a whole. So Natalie, tell us who is behind this and what they are planning. So as you mentioned, quite a big announcement from here at Capacity Middle East. So the companies actually behind this new venture is a international management, the Amsterdam Internet Exchange, the Bahrain National Holding Company, Golfbridge International, GCC Interconnection Authority, Golf Data Hub, GolfNet Com Communications Company and Newtel Communications. So quite a few companies there, all eight of them. But as you mentioned, signed this memorandum of understanding and they will create a new infrastructure services company. The company itself is called Alliance Networks. And as you mentioned, Mel, they aim to bridge high speed capacity infrastructure with data centers and exchange platforms. Now, 
specifically, they say they will simplify digital infrastructure access by providing a unified connectivity to data centers and internet exchanges. They'll do it in two phases. The interconnection phase will see all the GCC companies be interconnected, enabling it to function as a single region or country. And then the second stage referred to as the deployment phase, they will plan to deploy multiple interconnected internet exchanges in the region. As we're just at the kind of signing stage of this agreement, I think it's fair to say it will be very interesting to see how this plays out because when you have multiple countries kind of coming together and taking a unified approach to anything, telecoms or anything else, it's always an an interesting process, shall we say. To your knowledge, has this happened anywhere else in the world? Eight strong private companies coming together to basically interconnect a region as though it's one single country? No, I don't think actually I do. I mean, I don't know, Alan, if you can think of anything off the top of your head, but I can't. I think that when I first read it, the closest thing that kind of came to mind, and I know I relate everything to subseeds where they share, you know, a piece of infrastructure. And even that and of itself is a complicated thing because you have a lot of people with different opinions, different needs trying to, to do everything. But I don't think I have, no. I can't think of anything either. No, I think this must be first of its kind, really. I find the whole project absolutely fascinating and it sounds great. But the thing that really caught my attention on this was that the GCC for 43 months a couple of years ago was actually a five nation block because in 2016, Qatar was effectively kicked out of the GCC. So Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, along with Egypt, which granted is not a GCC nation, basically put a blockade on Qatar and accused of supporting the Muslim Brotherhood, etc, etc. We're not going into that. But this was absolutely huge at the time like flights grounded, business sanctions, as you'd expect. And basically the whole thing didn't end until January 2021. So the GCC, which they now want to connect as one great big nation, was effectively one country down. Now there's commentary around this that puts Trump at the heart of it all and the cynical takes that the whole saga, the blockade was lifted because of the World Cup, because Qatar didn't have enough hotels, fans most likely want to stay in Dubai and then travel to the matches they want to see, everyone will be very rich, etc, etc. But my point is that blockade was the longest rift in the history of the GCC and exposed some real cracks in regional relations. So if it happens again, what does that mean for interconnection projects like this? Now, I doubt anyone's ever going to go on the record and tell us, but it's a top question for me at this point. And the second top question is the Middle East is very protective of its business interests. And I would be very interested to know exactly who Alliance Networks wants to compete with here. I mean, it definitely is interesting. And I think, again, as you mentioned, no one's going to go on record. But if there are any details around that agreement and I suppose whatever concessions they have in place, because as you mentioned, if it kind of all goes south, what happens to that infrastructure? Does it just break apart? Does everybody just take the piece that they put in, etc.? So it's definitely a very interesting one. And hopefully we'll be able to speak to someone on the details of it. But it's an MOU, I mean, that's just breath of fresh air in itself. Usually you get news of an MOU and it's just an absolute snooze fest. (laughs) (laughs) Staying at Capacity Middle East, but moving to Safnow, who has huge news on the launch of Iraq IXP, which will be operated by DKIX. Saf, tell us what happened and what this means for Iraq. Another big story coming out of Capacity Middle East. DKIX has signed a strategic partnership with Iraq IXP that will see the development of an interconnection internet exchange platform aimed at improving capacity in Iraq. The announcement was made during the show with the official signing attended by Ivor Ivanov, CEO of DKIX, and Ahmed Al-Sheikh, CEO of Iraq IXP. The new plot will create a strong and healthy local interconnection and connectivity ecosystem, according to Ivanov, uh, with technical implementation planned for later this year. Ivanov adds that the key driver of this partnership is digitalization, and this requires adequate infrastructure. He said that in a country with a population of 40 million, where almost 34 million are already internet users, this piece of infrastructure should be seen as mandatory. He added that there's huge appetite for digital services at the performance at the best performance possible, and the company aims to deliver 
deliver this with localization of content and cloud application. And it's not hard to see why DKIX would want to expand in Iraq. It's the third largest country in the Middle East with internet penetration standing at around 75%. Ivanov went on to stress the importance of Iraq to DKIX. He described it as a unique, almost untapped market because of its geographical position and said that the partnership will bridge a gap in the market, finally delivering the infrastructure that people and businesses in the country deserve. Well, first question. You were at the signing this morning and you've attended a few signings this week. So I realised that they all kind of um, blur into one. But tell us what people are saying about this because it's huge news. Yeah, it's massive for Iraq as a whole and kind of the goal for Iraq IXP is to localise the internet traffic inside the country. They stress that quite a lot during the signing this morning. They just want to bring the highest quality services to the country and kind of bridge that digital divide that we hear so much about across various different countries. And of course, DKX has been in the news a lot this week, but even a couple of weeks ago, they said they wanted to interconnect Brazil and Southern Europe. And we all know about kind of the, the digital divide issues that exists in countries such as Brazil. So you mentioned there that DKX has been on a bit of a roll over the last week. Tell us about the other two developments that we've heard from over recent days. Yeah, so DKIX announced a new internet exchange in Leipzig, and it also revealed DKIX Phoenix, which is the fifth North America market, which is now live. And yeah, those were the two pieces of news that it announced earlier this week. And there will be more from DKIX in the April-May edition of Capacity Magazine, and lots more on all those stories over at capacitymedia.com. Well, as mentioned at the start of the episode, at Capacity Middle East, Natalie and Saf also caught up with Annabelle Helm, the new director of the ITW Global Leaders Forum. Now, there'll be lots of news from the GLF over the coming weeks, and we will cover all of that in due course. But for now, here's what happened when Natalie and Saf caught up with Annabelle. So we are live and on site at Capacity Middle East 2022, and I am delighted to be joined by Annabelle Helm, who is Director of the International Telecoms Week Global Leaders Forum. Annabelle, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Natalie. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's talk about the event for which we are at. What are your thoughts on Capacity Middle East 2022? How's the show been for you? The show for me has been absolutely incredible. I cannot tell you how amazing the buzz is on site. Um, this is the biggest ever Capacity Middle East. And since on the show floor and all of the meetings, that people are just over the moon to be back meeting in person, picking up up on all those vibes and the growth opportunities that are out there right now. So, you know, you're not here just to have fun. Lots of work for the GLF. Talk to me of the, the latest goings on. I know there's been a lot of meetings happening while we're here. You can't give us too many details, but how's that been going? It's been brilliant. So we hosted our first in-person board meeting on Monday since 2019. I think we worked out that it was 882 days since we'd all met in person. And since then, obviously, the world has changed. So much has happened. I mean, even aside from COVID, right, there's been Brexit. Harry and Meghan have left the royal family, you know, all of these different fundamental shifts in the world that we live in. And on the GLF board itself, we heard new faces, new companies. So it was an amazing opportunity to get everyone back in the room. We've been running the board meetings virtually for the last couple of years. And within a virtual space, one person can really speak at a time. So we really took the opportunity to make sure that the conversation was focused on the board itself. Lots of breakout conversations, lots of very impactful collaborative brainstorming. Yeah, it, it was it was brilliant. 
Well, I know Saf also has some questions for you, so I'm going to pass over to him. Hi, Saf. Hey, Annabelle. I just wanted to know, have you taken to the role of GLF director? Uh, I know you're quite new to the role and it's been a few months. So how's it been going for you so far? Well, yes, I think it's week 10 or something for me is uh, in the role. I have to say it's, it's been pretty amazing. You know, I I was part of this world, I actually worked at Capacity eight years ago. So it's been a bit of a hiatus for me being outside of the wonderful world of pulse cell communications. And the welcome to be back has been amazing. For one, I've really enjoyed catching up with new and old faces, although I shouldn't say old. Um, and I think the, the key thing for me is our purpose within the GLF and as an industry is keeping the world connected. And obviously the biggest issue that we face, particularly those of us who have networks and people in the region, has been the, the conflict in Ukraine. And that has been a big learning curve for me personally and equally for the GLF because we are facing issues as an industry that are you know unprecedented right off the back of a previous unprecedented black swan event, you know, in, in COVID and the pandemic response. So it's, it's a difficult time for everyone and keeping the world connected and increasingly fragmented marketplace is, is a challenge for us. And it's a challenge that the GLF is willing to accept, which is amazing. But obviously it's a huge issue that, that we're all focusing on. We're, we're working with Telecoms on Frontier and I, I encourage anyone listening to this to check them out. Out to think about what funds and donations they could give to, to Telecoms on Frontier. Obviously, cash is the most important thing that they need. But aside from that, we've established a mechanism within the, the GLF itself that any urgent requests for engineering support or personnel support in the region or equipment, TSF are communicating directly to us on an urgent basis. And we're pushing that out to our members who are doing their best to, to try and ensure connectivity in the region remains stable, especially when coordinating the humanitarian response. That's really great to know. And um, of course, we have a big show to look forward to in May, ITW. So what would you say are the priorities for you between now and then? Well, I mean, really, we're going to be building off the momentum that we built here. We actually hosted the the big, we had the most number of board members represented ever in Dubai on Monday. ITW is traditionally when the entire board convenes. So busy pulling together the agenda for that, which is very much going to be focused on growth opportunities for, for the carrier community and operators. So pulling together what a deep dive agenda might look like in terms of softwareization, automation, network as a service, what opportunities um, there are from a, from a carrier in terms of leveraging that kind of accelerated digital transformation on the enterprise side. And simultaneously to that, we release our annual report on diversity, inclusion and belonging at MITW. So we are pulling together all of the data and the survey for that. We launched the report in 2020, which was focused on gender. Last year's report was looking at racial inclusion, and this year we're looking at inclusion more broadly. So kind of pushing the agenda forwards and really focusing on what interventions are possible when that from a telecoms perspective to push that out and support inclusion across the world. 
on the GLF, we're lucky to represent the majority of the world's networks and internet backbone. So it's an exciting opportunity. That all sounds amazing, particularly the latest report on diversity and inclusion and certainly something I think we'll be following over at Capacity. It's something we led the charge on. So mm-hmm. keep us posted with all of that. And of course, we will be on site as well. But Annabelle, I know you're very busy. So thank you so much for taking the time and we will speak to you very soon. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been, it's been a blast. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thanks to the team for bringing us the latest on all those stories. Thanks to everybody who listened. A huge thanks to Annabelle for giving that interview and a special thanks to Richard Cosgrove for editing this episode. We will return next week for the last episode of Series 4 and our final guest of the series is from Orange Business Services. So more on that in due course. But until then, we'll not leave you without updates. Over at the newcapacitymedia.com, you can keep up with the latest industry developments and also nominate for the 2022 Global Carrier Awards. Nominations for the awards open on the 30th of March and a link to send your submission in is included in the post that brought you to this podcast. For now, that's all from me and the team. Have a great week, take care and catch you next time.